Uh, we're on week two of our series, It Came From Within, uh, and we're shining a light what, what kind of lurks in the shadows of the human heart. Now, speaking of the shadows of the human heart, I need to address something that's kind of family business. And so if you're a guest here, uh, you can tune out, play a game. I don't know what you do anymore these days. Um, so a little awkward, but uh, I need to address um, the blatant cheating that took place last week in the Super Bowl of preaching. Because, come on, you know it was there. All right, that's what lurks in the human heart. Now, full disclosure, our series is called It Came From Within. It is rated R for Reveal. And there may be psychological and spiritual nudity. So you enter at your own risk. I don't even know what that means, but there just might be. For a short time, my brother and I, we were uh, enrolled in a Christian school. And I'm not sure why, because religious, we didn't go to church. My parents weren't religious, but for whatever reason, they put us in a Christian school for just a couple of months from what I remember. And I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember getting in trouble. And uh, I was goofing around with a friend in the hallway, and the teacher came out, uh, Sister Mary, whatever, and uh, came out and uh, just came down on me. Now, for you younger people, you don't get it, but back in the day, teachers in school could inflict any sort of punishment short of death. So that was just like waterboarding. Yeah, that's okay. Mild electrocution. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So the only thing I feared more than my teacher was my parents getting a call from the teacher. So I came up with this foolproof plan, at least in my mind, this foolproof plan to get out of it that evening when I got home. So we're at dinner, my, my brother and I, and the air was thick, and my mom and dad were there, and um, we were just kind of waiting for the, the, the shoe to drop. And uh, I knew they knew, and they knew, I knew, they knew, and I knew, they knew, I knew, they knew, I knew, if you know what I'm saying. And so uh, we're kind of waiting and, and you know, waiting for when we were going to talk about it. Now, talk about it. My family was code for someone's about to get hurt. And in this case, it was me. So um, finally, after several minutes, my dad cleared his throat and he said, uh, Marty, is there uh, something you want to tell us about school today? Now, in the art of negotiation, whoever speaks first loses. So you younger people, this is where you want to be really careful because you don't want to give too much information, right? Well, it turned out they already knew everything. And so this is where I unveiled this brilliant plan of mine because I figured if I'm in a religious school, I probably ought to start using what I'm being taught. So they said, Marty, you have anything to say for yourself? Uh, uh, and, and, and then the question that came uh, always uh, preceded the beatdown was something in the effect of, boy, what were you thinking? And so I said, well, mom and dad, this is a true story. Mom, dad, um, it's kind of concerning, but... Um, the devil made me do it. That's what I told them. The, the devil, right? I don't even know if they believed in Jesus at that point, right? So I, I dropped the, the devil made me do it line, uh, to which my uh, non-religious dad said, well, what's about to happen next is going to feel like the devil made me do it, right? And it did. It did, right? It was another reminder to the need of, for behavior modification. Because what's funny to a friend may not be funny to a teacher and certainly will not be funny to my parents. In other words, what's appropriate on the playground may not be tolerated in the hallway because, because they're, they're, you know, we, 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 we kind of we moderate our behavior. 
and it's acceptable, right? It, it's, it's needed uh, in many cases. For example, this picture uh, at a football game, this is funny, right? But at church, next slide, uh, this is an arrest, okay? Right? It's just like that doesn't work in church. I don't want some guys sitting in the back with your shirts off because we're calling the cops. And so like there are things that are appropriate in one place and they're not appropriate somewhere else. It's behavior modification. And so we learn to filter our thoughts and our actions according to our environment. We learn what to say to our parents. We learn what to say to get a job. We learn what not to say to keep a job. We learn what to say to get, to, to get through school. We, we learn to filter our behavior to get a date. Because what I did hanging out with my friends at 21, eating pizza and wings or watching the Suns game, was not going to get me a second date for sure. And so we, we all kind of learn this, this art of filtering. We learn it as a young age. We establish filters between our thoughts and our actions. And some of it, as I said, is, is necessary. Behavior modification is about staying between the lines, which is all that culture is concerned about. All culture wants is for you to stay between the lines. They don't care why you stay between the lines. Culture doesn't care why you, you stay in line. They just want you to modify your behavior to filter so you stay in bounds. And if you can't, then there's a camp for people like that called prison. Right? That's all, all culture wants is for you to stay between the lines. The problem is that we said last week is that filters break down. Right? Filters begin to wear thin and, and filters break down. And when filters wear thin, it's only a matter of time before something busts through the filter. Right? Something in a heated moment, something in a moment of stress or something done out of anger. And everyone is left scrambling to, 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 to fight, figure out wh wh where did that come from. And as soon as something does bust through the filter, we go into damage control. And we say something like, I didn't mean it. Right? I, 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 I didn't mean it, or I, I don't know where that came from. Or we'll try to, to pass the responsibility to say, well, it's really your fault. You, you, you push my buttons. You, you made me do it. So then we, we start to make promises. We say things like, it will never happen again. And our solution to ensure that it never happens again is to put in a better filtration system. Because we think if I can just filter what's in my heart, I can keep what's in my heart from getting out of my heart in times of stress, times of frustration, times of anger. But if scripture is correct, scripture says that filtering isn't my problem. My problem is what lies within my heart. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 15. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. In other words, it's not behavior. Behavior is just an outward result of what's taking place in the heart. What comes out during times of stress, what comes out during anger is what was already in the heart. You may have an advanced filtration system that can keep it locked away, but at some point, something will seep through because filtering ultimately is not the answer. And this is why Jesus never really focused on behavior. He focused on the heart, right? Behavior modification, that's a church thing. Behavior modification is a religious thing. And some of you, maybe you left the church at some point because that's all the church was interested in is you staying between the lines. 
And when you stepped out of the lines, they just heaped all kinds of guilt and condemnation upon you. Because there was a time that pastors thought the only way we can keep you in church is if you feel real bad, really bad about yourself. And so the more guilty we make you feel, the more likely it is you're going to come back. It's not how Jesus operated. Not what Jesus did. Because he understood that behavior is a heart issue. To the religious group, the Pharisees, that believed they could polish the exterior as a way of presenting themselves pure and approved to God, Jesus said, here's the problem, is that you've polished the outside. He said, your behavior looks good. You honor me with your behavior. You honor me with your lips. But he says, your heart is miles from me. Because it was always a heart issue. Solomon, who was considered one of the wisest men of the ancient world, he said it this way, Proverbs 14, above all else, guard your heart. Now Solomon, he commented on all kinds of things, social matters, marriage, uh, justice, uh, work, relationships, marriage, anger, vanity, forgiveness. And so he kind of pushes all that aside as if to say, hey, all that is important, but if you don't catch this one thing, very little. You must guard your heart above anything else. Before you do anything else, guard your heart. And then he tells us why. Because everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from this, 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 this thing. Not your physical heart. It's, it's kind of spiritual, but not spiritual. We, you know, it, it represents the core of who we are. But you know, if they ever did an autopsy, they really wouldn't find it. But we, you know, we, we call it a heart. It's somewhere in there, not the physical heart. Other translations say the heart is the spring of life, that everything in life comes from this spring, meaning that if the spring is toxic, everything downstream is polluted. So guard your heart above all else. We could say it this way. Don't monitor your behavior. That's what culture says. Scripture says monitor your heart, and no one teaches us to do this. Culture only tells us to monitor the behavior. It only tells us to filter, right? That's why we say things like, don't do anything stupid. What are we saying? Stay between the lines. No one asked you, how's your heart doing when you were a kid? I doubt it. No one asked what's going on inside of you. My kids are teenagers going off. All I did was be wise. They knew what that meant. And don't do anything stupid. It was behavior. Stay between the lines. Nobody asks the deeper questions. Nobody teaches us how to guard our heart. So, so what, what, what does it look like to, to guard our heart? I think there's three continuous overlapping steps that, uh, let me try to bring some light to it here. How do we guard the heart? These musicians, they just leave stuff everywhere like they own the place. All right, let's talk about how we, how we guard the heart. Now, I tried to get a, uh, a heart-shaped vase, um, but they were too expensive and we're not CCV, so this is going to have to do. So, so here, here, here's, here's what it means to, to kind of guard, uh, guard the heart. L life has a way of, of uh, dumping things on us and, and lodging things in the heart, right? We, we, we all know that. We've all experienced that. 
Uh, it's it's, it's a, a common practice. And some of what gets in the heart, right? This, is, this represents our heart. Some of what gets in the heart is my own fault, right? It's, it's your fault. And, and so, and so we, we have to realize that some things we do that just aren't wise. John Paul, can we get this on the uh, display there, please? Some things we do that, that just are, are not wise, right? And so our heart gets filled with, with, with things that kind of begin to pollute the heart. And, and we have to take responsibility for that because it's on us, right? We, we did it. And so uh, it's things like, um, uh, well, I, I, I made a poor decision, right? I did it. I wanted it. We dated it. Uh, we fought with it. We married it. We slept with it. We divorced it. Uh, we, 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 we smoked it. We drank it. We lived it, right? Things, things that, that, that create damage to the heart. And, and this is on us. We, we, we've all done it. It's, it's not like we were trying to do it. We didn't know we were setting ourselves up for heart disease. It was, it was just that, that you know, we were doing what we do, right? Maybe trying to have a good time or we ignored good advice or, or, or what, what, whatever that looks like. And then other times, some of what gets into the, the heart has nothing to do with you. It's not your fault. It's the result of poor decisions of other people. It's the result of the dysfunction of other people. And, and maybe it was something that happened to you in your childhood, right? Someone did something extremely stupid and, and they crossed the lines and, and they did things that, that damaged you. And you are 100% innocent in it, right? It, it, was a, it was a family of origin situation. It was them. It really wasn't you. You're innocent. I, I get that. And there are moments in life where, where that's true. But then we have another problem. We have this, as scripture says, we have this, this issue of, 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 of sin. And if scripture is correct, we are born with this heart of sin, right? That's why you don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. You don't have to teach a child to be jealous. It comes naturally to them. And so scripture says that we're born with this heart of sin and, and that sin just you know, continues to grow within us and, and this becomes the, the, the resting place of the human heart, right? Part of it's my fault. Part of it is your fault. Part of it is just the fallen nature of sin that has polluted my heart. Now, here, here, here's the problem. When I came to Jesus at 14 years old and throughout my life, when you came to Jesus, wherever, wherever that was, Scripture says that immediately when you came to Christ, your spirit was renewed. You were declared to be holy. You were declared to be righteous, not because you earned it, but because Jesus did an exchange. We sing about it today, old for new. Jesus said, you give me your sin, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. And so you are declared, don't care what you did yesterday, don't care what you did on Friday night, if you're a Christ follower, you are declared righteous. Here's the problem. Your spirit is renewed but your heart is a work in progress. Your heart, when you come to Jesus, your heart still has some stuff hanging around. Your spirit, yes, right away, instant. The heart is a work in progress, and Scripture calls that work in progress sanctification. And it's an ongoing process of what, of what God is trying to do. In other words, from now until the day I die, the Holy Spirit is trying to get my heart to reflect the person that he's already declared me to be. Do you get that? Right now, the Holy Spirit is trying to get your heart 
to look like the person he's already created you to be. And that is a lifelong process. It doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen easily, right? It's, 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 a, it's a lifelong process that, 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 that takes place in us. So you come to Christ, your spirit is renewed, but your spirit is, is kind of a, a, a lagging indicator. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't say, uh, hey, welcome to the family. You have two months to get your stuff together or you're out, right? Philippians 1.6, where Paul says this, that I'm confident of this very thing. In other words, I'm sure of this. I'm positive that the one who began to clean your heart will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Listen, cleansing your heart is an activity that God is interested in even more than you. And if you will present your heart to him, God will do what only God can do. And so when it comes to guarding our heart, the first thing is that the heart needs to be cleansed. Now, we all wish we had this magic prayer that suddenly God would poof and suddenly this would be clean, pure drinking water, but that's not how God works. It's not an instant prayer that suddenly takes stuff away. See, here, 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 here's how God does it. The, the way that God cleanses the heart is that God begins to pour himself into me Right, And as he's pouring himself into me, something begins to happen. He's, he's, he's depositing his Holy Spirit in me. He's, he's, he's speaking things over me. He's speaking things into me. The old begins to go. The new begins to come. But it's not immediate, right? It, it, it takes some time. But if I'll stay close, right? Remember I say all the time, your job is proximity. If you'll stay close to the flow... The flow will continue to flow in you. And what's happening is as the new is going in, the old is being dispersed. The old is being pushed out as the new is being pushed in. And if you'll, if you'll stay in the process long enough, if you'll, if you'll keep presenting yourself before the Holy Spirit, then, then what God says is with time, your heart will become cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and cleaner until it's going to come to a point where, 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 where your heart isn't as stained as it used to be. But this is a process. And this is kind of what our hearts look like now, right? It's not dark, brown, ugly, but it still looks a little like urine, okay? Right? Because it's a process. I know you'd like, no, I wanted it to be spick and spick and span, but none of our hearts are. This is what it looks like. This is the journey that we're on. This is how God cleanses our heart. Now listen, guarding your heart means that you guard what's coming in. So God has started the process of cleansing, and now you have to guard what's coming in because what's coming in really quickly can start to stain the heart again, right? You guard what's coming in, but there's more. You also need to guard what's getting out. Here's what I mean. What God is putting into you needs to be guarded. What God is pouring into you needs to be guarded. What the, the words God has spoken over you, the promises God has spoken into you, the faith he has planted into you, all of those things, the, the words that God has said to you, who you are based upon who you think you are, all of that needs to be guarded because the human condition of the heart is to leak. And so if you want to guard the heart, first we present ourselves for, for God to cleanse the heart. And then we have to guard what's coming in. And then we have to guard what's trying to get out. If you don't do all three of them, 
your heart will never look like urine. That's a good thing. Right? This is actually a positive right now. Look, when, when life is over, yeah, this will be, this will be you know, flawless. If you don't guard what's coming in and you don't guard what's getting out, meaning the things that God is speaking into your life, then your heart will constantly be in a state of just brown, toxic sludge. And scripture says, look, if you want, if you want, to, if you want to live this Christian experience in a way that you get everything that God wants to give you out of it, then you're going to have to learn to guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Guard what's going in, guard what is coming out. So today I want us to present ourselves to God for him to continue the cleansing process over the next uh, three or four weeks. We're gonna look at uh, three or four emotions that lurk in the human heart that compete for control and want to, want to take over, right? They, 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 they want to lead us. And today we're gonna talk about something that's familiar to all of us. You've either, you have it or you've had it or you will have it again. Let's talk about guilt. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, just uh, enlighten us. Uh, as we look into your word, I pray that there would just be a, a heaviness that is lifting off of some of us and um, that we would just rejoice in the overwhelming mercy that is presented to us over and over and over again. And that when we present our hearts to you, you are faithful to continue pouring yourself into us, pouring the Holy Spirit into us. And yeah, it's not perfect. And yeah, it's still discolored. And yeah, I still got some things hanging around, but I'm not who I used to be. And so we pray that you would continue to pour into us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Guilt is the emotion associated with committing and acknowledging an offense. Something that you did against someone or something that you failed to do. Now, it's important to understand that all guilt is not created equal because not all guilt is bad, right? Guilt informs the conscience that we stepped out of bounds and hopefully guilt leads us to make amends and to, and to make something right. But we also must acknowledge that guilt doesn't play fair and guilt can easily turn toxic. Now, guilt can flow in multiple directions. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Guilt can flow up. We'll call that vertical guilt, right? This is between myself and God. When I've committed an offense against God, we call it sin. There is this, there is this kind of this thing of like, oh, man. Right, that, that there, there, there's some guilt, and it can be healthy because it informs our conscience, informs our spirit that we stepped over the line. But guilt can also flow out, horizontal guilt. This is when, this is when uh, my issue is with you. My offense isn't between God and myself. My offense is between myself and you. This is horizontal guilt, either something I did or failed to do. But then we also know that guilt flows in. And this is when I, I'm, I'm wrestling with myself because I, I let myself down, either something I did or uh, failed to do or something I swore I would never do and did it anyways. Whatever the direction guilt flows, guilt appears when we believe we took something from another person. And I'll unpack that what, that, what that looks like. Because guilt says that I owe you 
It could also say that I owe God or I owe myself, right? Guilt, guilt says, I owe you something. Here, here's what I mean. Uh, I said I wouldn't and I did. So now I owe you, right? I, 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 I broke a promise. And so now I owe you. I, I, I cheated and I lied. I owe you. I took something from you and now I owe you. Maybe you took a reputation. Maybe you took someone's self-esteem, or you took someone's respect. Maybe you took someone's childhood or their innocence, or you played with their emotions. I took something, right? This, this is when guilt comes into play because I feel like I took something from you or I let you down, something I said I would do and I failed you, and so now I owe you. And that's why guilt creates this debt-debtor relationship, that I am now in, 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 in debt to you. Because I, I owe you something, right? Because every offense, listen, every offense against someone means you took something from them. You may have taken money and not paid it back. You may have taken their trust. You may have taken their time. You may have taken a first marriage. You may have taken a dream of growing old. You may have taken hope. You may have taken love. But you, you took something from them, and now I owe you. I, I called someone last week because I felt like I crossed the line and I said something uh, to them that was disrespectful. And what I felt uh, in, in my conscience was that I took part of their dignity by what I said. Right? That 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 I wasn't sure how they took it. I didn't mean it in that way. But in hindsight, I was like, man, if they took that the way I didn't mean it. This was kind of like a dagger in the heart, and I felt like I, I took something from them. I, I took some of their, their dignity. I took some of their worth. I made them less than. I belittled them, very possibly. And so I called them on the phone, and here's what I said. True. I said, when they picked up the phone, I said, I owe you an apology because I've taken something from you. I, I, I owe you something. I'm, 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 in, I'm in debt to you. This is why we use phrases like, let me make it up to you. Because we understand this debt-debtor relationship, right? Like, I took something from you, and so, you know, we put our arm around the person and say, hey, let me make it up to you. Let me make it up to you works fine if you, if you borrowed 20 bucks and forgot to pay it back and say, let me, take, let me make it up to you by taking you out to a nice dinner. But what happens when you can't make it up? What when it's, impo when it's impossible to make it up? See, this is why all guilt is not created equal. Listen carefully. What attaches itself to guilt, I'll say it slow, what attaches itself to guilt is what determines if guilt informs the conscience or crushes the soul. What attaches itself to your guilt is what determines if guilt will just inform your conscience or whether it will crush the soul. So I think guilt can lead us to one of two places. It can lead us to mercy or it can lead us to misery. And if guilt leads us to mercy, then we, we deal with that, right? But when guilt leads to misery, like when this vertical guilt between myself and God, when, when instead of it landing on mercy, it lands on, on misery, then I fall into a performance cycle where I am constantly trying to make up for my flaws, and I'm constantly trying to work harder 
to make up for all of my mistakes. And then I drift into legalism or I begin to invent my own system to make amends and to please God. And we've all done it. Because it's not mercy, right? We're receiving misery. And so the way that we think that we're going to appease God is we say stuff like this. Well, um, you know what I'm going to do to make it up to you, God? Let me make it up to you. I'm going to put a little bit more money in the offering. Huh? Hmm? Yeah. How's that? We even? No? Okay. Uh, how about this one? Uh, I'm going to read my Bible. I, 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 I owe you, God. Let me, let, me, let me make it up to you. I'm going to read my Bible. And it's like you're almost like, hey, look, I'm reading it. I don't understand it, but I'm reading it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to volunteer at a shelter. I'm going to make it up to you, right? Because this guilt has become toxic. And so now I need, I need to work in order to get back into your good graces. I'm, I, you, know, you know what I'm going to do? This is how serious I am to make it up to you, God. I'm going to stay awake through the pastor's entire sermon. <laughs> Have you heard our pastor? That's a miracle, right? And so we've all played this game. When guilt lands on misery, when guilt turns toxic, we begin to invent our own system in order to make amends with God. When misery trumps mercy, inward guilt, listen, some of you perfectionists, inward guilt leads to a persecutory guilt, which is a form of self-inflicted punishment where I turn on myself. I hate the person I see in the mirror because I failed myself. I let myself down. I took something from myself. I made a promise to myself and I broke it. I swore that I would never do it and I did it. I said I would never compromise my principles and yet third week at work, I compromised my principles for the sale. And, and, and this is when it, when it turns inward, toxic guilt, right? We, we, we start to hate the person that we see, because ultimately when guilt turns toxic, the person you're most upset with is yourself. Because you failed you. And because you failed you, you will make sure no one will be able to meet your expectations because you didn't meet your expectations. And this cycle just continues. So there's this debt-debtor relationship. But we don't experience guilt as debt. We experience guilt as a weight that knocks us off balance. And so any relationship gets out of skew. If you're overly guilty, you have a really hard time coming to God in prayer, don't you? Because you're off balance. If, if you owe someone money and you run into them in the store, it's really hard to be yourself around them, isn't it? Because you're off balance, there's, there's a weight, right? The, the, there's been an inequity in the relationship. The debt-debtor relationship has been magnified. And so we experience guilt as a weight that knocks us off balance. Off balance may look like being too aggressive or too timid in a relationship. Because you're in that relationship and you're functioning out of guilt. Or struggle with the ability to love or the ability to commit or unable to forgive or maybe you're out of balance in your career or you may be out of balance in your parenting where decisions are skewed and perceptions are skewed because I'm off balance and, uh, in my parenting because I'm parenting out of my guilt from my past. We've all guilty. We've all parented out of guilt. It doesn't work. See, the thing with guilt is that guilt travels with you. Guilt never stays in the relationship that it started in. 
What I mean is that, is that what, what, what happened in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. And what happened on the business trip doesn't stay at the bar. And what happens on the internet never really stays in cyberspace. You carry it with you into every relationship you have. It travels with us. It's, it's why we say things like, like when we finally come clean and we confess, we say something like this. I just feel like what's been lifted off of you. I just feel like a weight has been lifted off of me. Because I've been carrying around this weight for, for weeks, months, years. And when you finally can confess, it just feels like a weight has been taken off of you. The problem is, the problem is, when guilt turns toxic, to get out from under that weight. Here's why. Because sometimes what was taken cannot be given back. Sometimes what was taken cannot be given back. How do you give time back? How do you give someone back a first marriage? How do you give back someone's dream? How do you give back a reputation or, or, or self-respect? How do you give back someone's husband or wife? Right, this, this becomes difficult because we, we have this overwhelming toxic guilt and there is no way to make it right. And so we live with it. There seems to be no recourse because I can't go back in time. I can't re-raise a first child can't redo a first marriage, right? I can't unleave. I can't unsay it. I can't un, un be faithful. I can't return someone's childhood. And so we're, we're left with this toxic guilt. There's nothing we can do about it. And so it leaves us two choices to deal with it. We can either deny it, which means we come up with a narrative to lessen its effect, to help us live with it. And the narrative usually sounds something like this. Uh, um, well, everyone was doing it. It was my freshman year in college. Come on. I was only in my 20s. All right, I was 29, but I'm still in my 20s. Right? We come up with a narrative that allows us to carry the weight with us. And so we, we just, we just kind of deny it or we try to forget about it altogether. Our second option, if, if we don't deny it, then we feel the only other option is we can be defined by it that I will be defined by my worst day. I will be defined by my worst activity, the worst season of my life, that I failed on a level I cannot come back from. And this is where guilt and shame become neighbors. What you've done and shame is because of who you believe you are. And so we're left with, with nothing else. But what if, what if there is another way? What if there's a way to not deny it in a way to not be defined by it. Let's look at what scripture has to say. We'll go quickly through this. I'm gonna read you something that the Apostle Paul said, but uh, as, as I read it, I don't want you to hear me reading scripture. I want you to hear me reading a letter written to the Christians in Rome by a guy who experienced more guilt than possibly anyone else in this room. Because Paul, when he stepped on the pages of history, his original name was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous to keep his Jewish faith and to keep his traditions. So he went on the hunt. And on the hunt mean he started hunting down Christians to persecute them, throw them into jail, or to have them killed. Now imagine what it was like when word began to spread that Saul of Tarsus had a religious experience and now he's claiming to be one of us. You imagine that. 
You imagine if enemy number one of the church comes through that door and he said, hey, good news, I'm part of the family. And that's why the disciples, when Paul had a conversion, was like, yeah, no. Right? They were like, keep your distance. Now imagine what it was like, because eventually Paul's conversion could not be disputed. He went from being the biggest enemy of the church to the biggest supporter, activist, right? The, the biggest supporter of the church. Imagine what it was like when this guy walked into a community of believers and had to face down the children of the parents he killed. Imagine what it was like to have to face a now single mother who's trying to raise her children because the husband he made gave the orders to kill. Or for family members that are possibly still in jail. And now he's come into this community and every time he sees someone, every time he has a relationship, every time he speaks with someone, all he could think about was my past and what I've done. I don't know how you deal with that kind of guilt. And so what did he do? How do you get past that kind of weight and that kind of regret? Well, we know what he didn't do. He didn't deny it. He didn't come up with a narrative. He didn't let it define him. Right? He didn't withdraw from society, live in persecutory guilt. He discovered a third way. And listen to what the, a man with this much guilt said to the church in Rome in 56 AD. He said this, therefore, there is now no condemnation. He's like, hey, come on in. You, all that you've done, I get it. I've done worse. All that you've done in your worst moments, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you in because I have something to declare condemnation and it's not because you're not guilty. Oh, you're guilty. You did it. I did it. We all did it. You're guilty. You're just not condemned. And he, he kind of he says, there's a third way to deal with this thing of guilt. He says, there's a space where you don't have to be defined by it and you don't have to deny it. And then he says, this is where that space is, Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the space. In Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. You are not in other words, those who are willing to acknowledge their past before Christ will stand uncondemned and regain their balance. He goes on to say, because through Christ Jesus, in other words, Jesus accomplished something that no one else could. The rules have changed, right? Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Listen, the law of sin and death was just a, 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 a mosaic law that was passed down. It was a rules of do's and don'ts. Uh, and and, and the, the law said, here's what you have to do. Here's what you can't do. And the law said that when you fail and you will, you're screwed. Because there is no way to become unguilty. You did it. And you will, you will live in the Yeah, We can come up with ideas that may make you feel better, but it really has changed nothing. And so this idea that, 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 that the law has come, look, look what it says in, in verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, the purpose of the law. My phone is blowing up. I don't know what's going on. Um, the, uh, what the law was powerless to do. Because the purpose of the law was never to get us to be righteous. The purpose of the law was to show us that we need a savior. Right? We can't do it on our own. And so Jesus did that no other, what no other law could do. A mosaic law, a federal law, a religious law, a law of a municipality. It doesn't matter. All that a law can do is to define the boundaries and tell you when you stepped over. 
And then when you stepped over, it can, it can distribute punishment. But no law can restore your heart. Romans 8, 3. For what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. How, how, how did God able to do it? Have you heard the expression, if you want something done, do it yourself? That's exactly how God got it done. Right? He, he came in the form of flesh. And he took our sin upon himself and took out the penalty for that sin. here's, Here's what I want you to hear. You are not condemned. All types, there is no divine condemnation, meaning you are not condemned by God. There is no self condemnation. You are not condemned by yourself. Because listen, when you gave your life to Jesus, you gave up the right to condemn yourself. Because to condemn something, to condemn yourself, you have to own yourself. And when you came to Christ, you already gave yourself to him. And so you have lost the right to condemn yourself. All condemnation has been lifted off of you. In other words, no one can condemn you because of what Christ Jesus has accomplished. And we all agree, yeah, you're guilty, you did it. But there is no condemnation God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, God condemned something, but it wasn't you. It's sin. Now, uh, if if I have these up here, I don't know if I still do or not. Someone's a thief in here. That's all right. We'll move on. We'll move on past it. Let, let, let's, let's, let's get to this close. Let me have the band come up. We're going to close with a song. Let, let, let me tell you what Christianity is not. Christianity is not, I hurt you. Christianity is not, I took something from you. Christianity is not, I betrayed you. I cheated you, and then I went to God and I confessed, and God patted me on the head and said, go run along and play. That is not Christianity. Christianity is, I failed you, I took something from you, and I confessed to God, and God gave me what I did not deserve, and so now I'm going to give you what you do deserve. This is where it becomes really difficult. Because you confessing your guilt to God, that's, that's easy. But if you want to break out of that pattern, if you want your heart cleansed, you're going to have to confess to someone other than him. You may have to go to the person that you took from. You may have to go to the person you cheated on. You may have to go to the person you stole from. And you may need to say, I'm sorry. And when you go back, you don't go back with a narrative. You don't go back with excuses. You don't go back with a story. You don't go back with, yeah, but I remember you. No, 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 no. You don't do any of that. You go back and give to them what God gave to you. If you want that guilt lifted, then you may have to go back to the person you offended. That's why James says, look, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed, so that your your heart can be cleanse. And I know right now, some of you, you're kicking against me. You're like, I'm not, I'm not contacting my ex. You need to contact your ex. Like, you don't know what she was like. I don't care what she was like. This is between you and God. This is between you and her. And if you are a Jesus follower, then you need to give her or him 
what God has given you. Look, when, when, when Jesus said that, that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, right? Confessing to God, that's easy. Hey, God, I did it again. See you same time tomorrow. God, I did it again, right? And God's like, oh, yeah. God, I cheated on her again. Yeah. You want to get past it? You're going to need to do some confessing. You may have to go back into your past and show what Jesus is like to someone. And you never know what you speak into them and over them may release them from years and years of bondage and hatred and anger and unforgiveness. Because you've moved on with your life and you got another family, and you got a different job, and, 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 and you moved to a new state, and you got a new house, and you're driving a nice car, and the whole time they're thinking, they have no conscience, they don't even, and you should make it right. As we're closing this out, I want you to wrestle with two things. I want you to wrestle with the guilt, the guilt that maybe rests heavy on you now between you and God, and then I want you to consider the guilt that you have against another person and what it looks like to make that right. And then finally, myself, my perfectionist, how can you give up condemning yourself and step into mercy instead of misery? Father, I pray for mercy. Mercy. I pray that you lift off misery. I pray that you... Pour into us mercy that we would find what we do not deserve. And when we find it, that we would then turn and give to others what they do deserve. And I pray through confessions like that, that the heart would continue to be cleansed and purified.